0: His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of God. Thanks, Miao So for reading scripture for us. Uh, Beloved, it gives me great joy to introduce our speaker this morning. Uh, He is Thomas Hamilton, a member of GBC and a faithful uh, CG leader as well. He's married to Julie, and they have four lovely young daughters. You really get to meet them. Uh, Thomas is a missionary. He's based in Singapore and has been in ministry for a number of years now. So I'm excited to hear him bring God's Word to us this morning. Yeah, Thomas.
1: Good morning, all. Thank you, Brother Eugene, for introducing me. <clears throat> you know, we are blessed here at our church with our elder Crew or our elder team. For those of you who have been in other churches, you know we have something unique here that we have a, a group of men who are all pastoring us, all loving us, shepherding us, um, leading us to faithfulness. Um, and so it's my privilege to join them in the ministry of sharing the word with you this morning. Um, it's a wonderful chance as we continue to celebrate our theme of Advent Glory has come. Indeed, Glory in the form of Jesus has come, although we are looking forward to that and and walking towards that, we celebrate on Christmas Day. Glory demonstrated through the person um, of Jesus coming down, his passion for his creation, for his people, and for his church. Now during this Advent season, much of what is celebrated in our culture has gone away from uh, Jesus, right? So it's hard to walk into a store, uh, even into UC, there's Christmas lights. There's candies, there's music, uh, there's, you know, the trees and all sorts of decorations all around us, right? And, and during the season, much of what is celebrated is not Jesus, but instead the quote-unquote magic of Christmas. Now, if we were in a place where we could walk outside and it was snowing, slightly below freezing, maybe it'd feel a little bit more magical than here in Singapore when we walk outside and it's sweating. But the idea of that magic of Christmas has become so common within the culture, About two weeks ago, I overheard three of my daughters, my older three, Lucy, Core, and Claire, arguing very passionately in their room. You can imagine, as their father, I wasn't too happy about the way they were treating each other, the way they were interacting with each other, and so I made a beeline straight to their door, about to correct them, of course. But as I opened the door, my five-year-old Claire ran up to me and exclaimed, Daddy, Lucy says that magic isn't real. Well, you can imagine this is a heartbreaking moment for her. And as a dad, I want to set the record straight. What is magic? What is not? What is real? And, and what is fake? It took about 10 minutes or so, discussion on supernatural power, the important topic, right, for them, especially in the age of Disney princesses like Elsa with her magical ice powers you know, flying unicorns, Santa Claus during the season, all of these things. It's an important topic for us to discuss with our children. What is real? In fact, back when Lucy was two or three, um, we would often play a game. Whenever I was driving with her in the car and she was in the back, in her car seat in the back, we'd play this game, real or fake. So I would just name off something and say, you tell me, real or fake? So, you know, start, start easy. You know, elephants out right here, real in the back. Unicorns, fake. Okay, good. a good pattern. Sometimes she would miss one. Say something like, mermaids, she'd say real. Or I'd say, you know, sharks, she'd say fake. But generally, the whole purpose of the game, the whole purpose of this game, was to get her to understand that there are things that you hear of in culture that are just made up. That's okay, as long as we know that this is fake, purely for entertainment purposes. But then there are other things that are supernatural that are real. Why would I want to emphasize that with my two-year-old is because as I began to teach her the true source of power, I want her to be clear about it. If we don't distinguish these things, we'll very quickly get mixed up in our children's minds, in some ways, even in our own minds. If we allow them to believe certain things that are just made up are real, and then we tell them stories of Jesus and what he's done, and say that's also real, they'll be very confused. So I want my daughters to be clear about the true source of power physically and spiritually. And I want them to be able to distinguish that between make-believe and what is true. In John's gospel, he had, in some sense, a similar goal. Of course, in his time, there were no unicorns, there was no Santa Claus. But he chronicled seven signs or seven specific miracles. Out of the many thousands that Jesus did, he only included seven in his gospel course, the one we're going to speak on this morning, creating wine out of water, healing a son of an official, healing an invalid, someone who's paralyzed, feeding the thousands of people, walking on water, healing a man born blind, raising Lazarus from the dead, and then, of course, he himself raising from the dead. You can imagine all of these sound like pretty grand miracles. Maybe the least of them would be the one we get to discuss this morning, right? It's not healing someone who has been paralyzed from birth, making someone who can't see, see. All he did was just change water to wine. John says in chapter 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And of course, if we read the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we can see lots of miracles. And even those does not even scratch the surface on all that Jesus did. But he continues in verse 31. But these are written, these signs John has given, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wanted his readers to embrace Jesus as the long awaited Messiah, the Son of God. And you might think, well, why is this particular miracle, water to wine, only in the Gospel of John? Well, perhaps it was because he was the only gospel author present at this miracle. He doesn't directly identify himself, but in the end of chapter 1 of John, we see there is an unnamed disciple there, likely John. So let's turn our attention to the actual story, starting with the idea of Jesus' hour not yet come. In verse 1, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, Cana, the city, was likely 12 to 15 kilometers away from Nazareth. So maybe half day's journey from Nazareth, where Mary would have been living, up to Cana. And it took place on the third day, meaning three days after Jesus had called Nathanael as his disciple. Now these weddings, these feasts, these were major social events, right? Everyone in Cana would have known there was a wedding that day and who was getting married. It's an important thing for the entire city in that sense. And Mary was there as well. And since Mary knew that the wine had run out, even though, as we'll see in the story later, the groom himself did not know, Mary was likely known to the groom's family, maybe a family friend. Now, we don't see that directly in the text, but that is likely the case. Jesus and his disciples were there as guests. Now, I've heard before um, in maybe some common ideas or myths about this particular story that Jesus was invited, but his disciples weren't. And then he brought all his buddies along, and they crashed the wedding, and they drank all the wine, and they ran out. So the problem was really Jesus invited his disciples. No, that's not the case. Jesus and his disciples were invited, specifically the five, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and the unnamed disciple. They were all invited. You know, There's a, a theologian in the U.S., Warren Wiersbe. He says this. He says, wise is that couple that invites Jesus and his buddies to their wedding, right? And of course, incredibly wise on this particular occasion because Jesus not only came as an invited guest, he saved the whole wedding. The reason why is because running out of wine at the wedding would have been a major social disgrace. They would not have prepared for their guests. And for the rest of that couple's lives, they would have a black cloud hanging over their marriage. Everyone would be like, oh yeah, that couple 20 years later, They're the ones who ran out of wine at their wedding. Eh, glad I'm not them. You know, for the rest of their lives, that would have been hanging over their heads. In fact, it's an anecdote, but 25 years ago, I remember at my sister's wedding, the appetizers ran out, and I didn't get any. So if I remember a little thing like that 25 years ago, you can imagine in this culture how much more would they remember that, in fact, they'd been disgraced because wine ran out. So it's kind of interesting here. Mary comes to Jesus. She says, Jesus, they're out of wine. Now, she's not saying, hey, Jesus, can you run to the supermarket, pick up a couple boxes, come back here. No, she's not saying that. So the question is, well, why would she even bring that up to Jesus? Why would Mary go to her son Jesus and say, they're out of wine? What does that have to do with Jesus? Well, he answers that same thing. He says, what does it have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But Mary's going to Jesus is not saying, hey, son, they're out of wine. Sad for them. No. Something greater than that. She's saying, Jesus, son of God, they're out of wine. She's saying, Jesus, promised Messiah, they're out of wine. Jesus, the chosen one, they're out of wine. Now, how would Mary have known who Jesus was? Jesus, up to this point, had never done a miracle. He's 30 years old or so. He had never change water to wine. It's not like when he was growing up, he was pretending, playing around in his room, you know, making food, bringing it out, and saying, hey mom, you don't have to cook tonight. I made food for us out of nothing. No, he had not done that yet. How would Mary know? Well, despite the commonly sung Christmas song, Mary, did you know? In fact, she did know. So we don't need to sing that song too much longer. Mary did know that who Jesus was. She knew all about him. Why? Well, the angel had come and told her before he was born, before she knew she was pregnant. The angel Luke 1:26 had come and said, "Here's the deal. You're pregnant. You're going to have a son, Jesus, savior, Messiah." So she knew who he was. And what he was capable of. And she expected Jesus to do something about it, even though she had never seen him do it before and didn't know how he was going to do it. Now, Jesus responds in a way that maybe catches us a little off guard. He says, woman, what's that got to do with me? So for those of us who are sons, myself included, if your mom comes and asks you to do something, don't respond this way. It's not helpful. In this case, though, it was not disrespectful. The term woman is actually a a, a term of of honor that's used by Jesus throughout the Gospels. He uses the same term when he's on the cross in the end of John, and he's looking down at his mother Mary, and he says, Woman, behold your son, John. He looks at John and says, John, behold your mother. This is not a disrespectful response. But he is indicating a new relationship between himself and Mary. Up to that point, he was just her son. Yes, he was the promised Messiah, the chosen one, but he was her son. But beginning this day, when he begins to reveal his nature, up until the point of his death, he no longer is responding to Mary as a son. He's no longer relating to her in that way, but now he has to relate to her as Messiah. Mary can no longer look and say, Jesus, my firstborn, but Jesus, my God. Jesus, my Savior. Jesus, my Messiah. His response points to a distance between himself and his task and Mary and her own earthly desires. Mary's just thinking wine, wedding, dishonor. Jesus is thinking of saving the world. And he's saying there's a distinction here. And he answers, my hour has not yet come. Now this phrase is used over and over again in John to refer to Jesus' death and exaltation on the cross. That is his hour. And he's saying, it's not time for that yet. Interestingly enough, from this moment, he's also telling Mary, you're human, you can't command me in any way because I, in fact, am God. And until the point where he willingly allows himself to be arrested and taken, and tortured, and put the cross, he will not be subject to human authority. Now, at the point of the cross, of course, he had full authority, as God he could have, called down angels, done whatever he wanted to do, but he willingly subjected himself to human authority. That is his hour that has not yet come. Interestingly here, though, Mary doesn't just say, oh, sorry, Jesus, go back about her duties at the wedding. But, she continues and turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. She's persistent in her faith. Mary responds to Jesus by honoring him in faith. And interestingly enough, this is actually our last quote from Mary in Scripture. We don't have any quotes from Mary after this in any of the Gospels. And Jesus responds to her faith Not just to appease his mother, especially not to obey her. He's not under her authority. But as she had exhibited faith with her request, and even further instructions to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Jesus honored her faith as he had received her honor. Let's continue in the story, the jars of purification. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So six water jars. The Jewish system of purification required pure water from pure jars. Pure water means had not been defiled. Jars that were pure would have been, in this case, stone, so they could not have um, they couldn't have. Yeah, dirtiness within them. They could be purified. And specifically, most often what they were used for is they would dip water out from these jars and pour on the hands of the attendees, the Jewish attendees, before they ate. Now, during COVID times, we think it makes a lot of sense. They're washing their hands, make sure there's no bacteria at dinner. That was not the primary reason. It was not mainly for hygienic purposes, but rather to focus on a religious cleansing, specifically to wash away any dirtiness. Now, during their time, before they would come in to eat, when they're outside of their home, there would be walking the streets, and there were non-Jews there. There were Roman soldiers, there were Gentiles, there were Samaritans, all of those dirty people. By the way, it's all of us, the dirty ones, Right? And so when they came in to eat, they would have to wash all that away. We don't want anything to do with them because we are special and pure people. That was in their minds. Thinking that if they purify the outside of themselves, then they were actually pure. These were big jars, 100 liters or so, quite large, and filled with water. And when Jesus said, hey, fill these jars up with water, this wasn't a small task. These were huge jars. They're made of stone. Maybe it takes two servants to move each one around to fill them up. They don't have a hose. This is dipping water with a bucket from a well, bringing it up and filling these jars. It could have been an hours-long task. So it's not a nothing he's asking them to do. But they do it right away. And they do it completely, 100%, to the brim. There was no way to add anything afterwards. As was common at the time, the wine would be mixed with water. Uh, before it was served, to dilute it a little bit. But these jars were filled with water all the way to the brim. No chance that Jesus snuck a few bottles of wine and dumped them in the top. Made his miracle uh, look like a miracle. Nothing like that. And then he asked them even something more interesting. He said, dip out some water, take it to the master of the ceremony. Now you can imagine putting it in modern perspective, be something along these lines. Let's say, Uh, There's time. Your big boss requires you to have a presentation turned into him, and it's not done. You've got nothing on the slides. As Jesus says, show me what you got, and you pull up, and literally your PowerPoint has one slide, and it's blank. He says, yeah, just go turn that in. And You're thinking, if I turn this in, I'm going to be fired, right? Something like that going on. The servants are told to dip out from these jars that were water. They filled them up with water. They knew it was water. They got it from the well. These are servants, they know what water looks like and tastes like and smells like. It's got no smell, okay, in fact. They're drawing it out, take it to the master of the feast. You can imagine, you're the master of a feast, and a servant interrupts you and says, hey, here, try this. And you drink it, and you say, good job, you brought me some water. Yeah, they would not be very happy with that servant, but they do it anyways. Out of either respect for Mary, who told them to obey, or because they knew something was greater about Jesus. So, when the master of the feast, verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you kept the good wine until now. The idea, you drink the best wine first. These events were multi-day events between three and seven days long. They start out with the very best, and then over time, they kind of reduce the quality. But he's saying, you kept the best wine until now. The master of ceremony doesn't know where this wine came from. The groom who was responsible for purchasing the wine doesn't know where this wine came from. But the fact is, the wine had already run out. It was gone. And that symbolizes the idea of first century Judaism had run its course. It was spiritually empty at this point. It was for naught to follow it at this point. And yet Jesus is going to produce something new. Now the master of the feast, being clueless to the origin of the wine, is very interesting. Because Jesus did not choose to reveal himself in front. Now, if I were Jesus, no, no, Praise God I'm not. You guys wouldn't be here if I were with Jesus, right? But I'm just thinking my way of doing it. If I'm going to do a miracle, if I can do these miracles, right? I would walk to the front of the wedding. Oh, they're out of wine. Look, good chance for me. I walk to the front, call everyone's attention, bring the jars up, right? Have them be filled with water. Maybe get a few audience members come taste the water. It is water, yes, of course. And then, boom, now it's wine. Now I'll try it. But he didn't do that. In fact, the master of peace, we're not told in the story, if he ever knows where the wine came from, the groom as well doesn't know. Where does this wine come from? Who did Jesus choose to reveal himself to first? Servants. Servants. And, of course, his disciples. That's it. The lower class, that's where he started. This grand miracle, the first one in the story, the Gospel of John, revealed to servants. This good wine is symbolic of what Christ will bring, a new, better covenant. Not for the religious elite, but for us all. Not just for the Jews, praise God, but for all of us, Gentiles as well. Bringing a proper relationship with God through him. His presence and power in a way that the stale, corrupted religion of the day could The story continues because Jesus' glory is made manifest among his disciples. Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Our theme, glory has come. Jesus demonstrating his glory and his disciples believed in him. The disciple John saw through this first miraculous sign that Jesus revealed his glory the first time. And the purpose of all the signs, including this one, was to inspire belief. Jesus did not go out looking for power and fame and money. If there are religious leaders out there, current or past, who are pursuing power, fame, and money, don't follow them. Jesus didn't pursue any of those things. He pursued God's glory. He wanted to be a conduit to show others the nature of who God is and pursue his glory. He w- wanted to be honored with honor that was due to him because of his divine nature. But through this sign, specifically here, he is pointing to his own deity, although in a quiet, behind-the-scenes kind of way. His glory was manifested and Jesus displays God's true nature within himself, all in one small miracle. I could think so. For me, I at least think, compared to other ones, kind of small. The disciples, the only ones walking away understanding what happened. The only ones mentioned is understanding the gravity of the miracle that they had witnessed. They had already responded in following him. When Jesus had called these five men, they had already left their livelihoods and followed him. They had already, for Nathaniel only a few days, the others a little longer, heard his teaching. Known he was a great rabbi. But now they're seeing... He's not just a rabbi. He's something greater than that. This first sign in the Gospel of John portrays Jesus as divine, and he gives three specific attributes of Jesus that we're going to look at. The first is that he is the sovereign creator. Jesus is the sovereign creator. In our call to worship, we read from Colossians 1, a Christological hymn of sorts, that's in Paul's letter. Starting in verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And before all things. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of The body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God in Jesus. All things created by him and through him and for him. Jesus is the sovereign creator. Sometimes we get this idea that, okay, Jesus, he's the one who came and died on the cross. I remember that. And then the Spirit, he came later, right? And before all of that, there was God, the Father, he created all things. No, Jesus is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is God. God created all things. Jesus created all things. He is God. And we see here his authority demonstrated in this one small miracle. His authority over all things in creation. While this miracle may seem like a small thing, it demonstrates just the magnitude of his authority because Jesus had complete control over all creation down to the molecular level. He was able to molecularly change water into something completely different, wine. Now, my undergrad, very similar to Pastor Ollie, was in biology. But I don't remember very much about it, unfortunately, because I have changed my focus. But some of you, especially students, maybe you're a little uh, closer to your studying of um, your chemistries, and you really understand this better than the rest of us. The molecular adaption just changed. It is not possible, even with all the equipment and all the power sources we have now. We cannot change water to wine, even if we try. But Jesus was able to do it without any of the requisite ingredients, He didn't have to start with grape juice and a fermenting agent. He started just with water. Well, if he can do that from water to wine, then he can do anything. If he can change even the molecular level of what we have now, then he can do anything. He is completely in control over this creation. Demonstrates his authority. Demonstrates his power. His power over time. How he transcends time in this miracle. Now, normally, it takes a long period of time to make good wine. We might think, okay, you got to start with your grape juice, but in fact, we don't start there. To make good wine, you start with a grape seed that's planted. Then a vine grows, right? And over many, many years, it's cultivated until it comes to the season for bearing grapes. Even that season is months long to get a good ripe bunch of grapes, which are then harvested, crushed. We get the juice, fermenting agent, put it in some sort of barrel And I am not a wine enthusiast, but those of you who may be, you know, good wine takes quite some time to develop. It's not just one year. It could be decades. But in one second, Jesus did what normally takes decades. He has complete power over time and all creation. But it's not just that. Jesus is not just the sovereign creator who could have stayed in heaven and been worshipped by angels for all creation and had no need to come humble himself and be born. He is also our purifying Savior. He is also our purifying Savior. Using ceremonial washing jars, used to wash the outside of the body, he refilled those jars with something for the inside of the body, challenging that relig- the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders' way of thinking. He actually challenges them openly in Matthew 15. His disciples were um, chastised for not washing their hands in the ceremonial way before they ate. Jesus says in Matthew 15, verse 10, And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. What Jesus is saying is it's not what you eat that can mess you up. There's no food that we can eat that makes us spiritually unclean on this earth. There is no food on this earth that we can eat that makes us spiritually unclean. We are unclean because of our hearts. Our hearts are full of sin. The wine that's used to fill these purification jars also points ahead to Jesus' coming death through which his blood was shed to purify those who trust in him from their sins. We celebrate this every month when we take communion. The wine, or in our case, grape juice, represents Jesus' blood shed for us. The book of Hebrews, which is all about, book of Hebrews, if you sum it up, that Jesus is better than everything else, Hebrews 1.3, we see that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is our Jesus. Not only is he the sovereign creator who humbled himself to be born in a very poor way, he is also our purifying savior who as very God and complete control of all creation, allowed himself to be captured, be killed, be tortured for our sake. Through his sacrifice, we have been made pure and holy. Hebrews 10.10 10 says, And by that will we have been sanctified, made holy, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus' sacrifice once gives us holiness for eternity. If that weren't enough, sovereign creator, purifying savior, he is also our gracious provider. You know, I think the most interesting line here is kind of uh, in, in this story is the master of ceremonies saying to the groom, kind of chiding him, saying, what in the world are you bringing this good stuff out now? You've saved the good stuff for now, the best for now points us to something, though. He didn't know in his statement, he was actually pointing to the truth of the new covenant, being better covenant than the old, based on better promises, as we see in Hebrews, again, chapter 8. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant that he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. Promises not made through... um, Keeping the law, but promises made through what Jesus has already done for us. Jesus as our perfect bridegroom. Not like the groom in Cana, who at his wedding, they ran out of wine. But a much better groom. Jesus is the perfect bridegroom for his bride, us, the church. Where our wine will never run out. And if it does, he'll just make some new. It will never go dry. His provision for us is abundant. He is the all-sustaining, all-providing vine for us. Those who abide in him will find rest for their souls and produce the fruit of righteousness. There's a passage in Ephesians chapter 3, sometimes used as a benediction. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Far more abundantly than all we ask or even think. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we're honest with ourselves, that is case for us. How often do we get something? Whether it's a promotion or a bonus at work, something like that along those lines, or a gift from someone else, something that we didn't even ask God for. We didn't even think about. But God in his graciousness gives us beyond what we even ask. And sometimes this is a hard concept for us, thinking about God as a gracious provider. We can think about those in our church now who are suffering physically, thinking about the Yo family and Helen and their children, maybe worrying how is Jesus providing for them is he providing for them? You know, when we go through difficult times, it's hard. There's a quote by J.C. Ryle that I think is very encouraging to us regarding this miracle. The manner in which the miracle at Cana was worked deserves special notice. Because Jesus simply willed the change and it took place. He didn't have to do anything physically, he didn't even speak in this case. He just willed it and it happened. There is no prophet or apostle in the Bible for that matter, outside of the Bible, who has ever worked a miracle after this fashion. He who could do such a mighty work in such a manner was nothing less than very God. And he continues, it's a comfortable thought that that same almighty power of will, which our Lord here displayed, is still exercised on behalf of his believing people. We have no need of his bodily presence to maintain our cause and our faith. We have no reason to be cast down or discouraged because we cannot see Jesus with our eyes interceding for us or touch him with our hands. If Jesus wills our salvation and the daily supply of our spiritual needs, then we are as safe and well provided for as if Jesus were standing here besides us. Christ's will is as mighty and effectual as his deed. May we be encouraged by that. John wrote in, we already read this, but in chapter 20, verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. The disciples, they had heard Jesus' words before this. He had taught them. They had followed him. They believed in him enough to follow him, but now they were seeing miraculous confirmations of their faith, and it was changing their lives. So thinking back to the analogy I began with, my daughters watching you know, their shows, their favorite one now, How to Train Your Dragon, thinking about what's real, what's fake, magic, not. How much more, ha- I'm happy for them to enjoy those things. But how much more happy am I? How much more joyful am I when I see them growing in their understanding of who Jesus is? The Jesus who, in Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So this morning, the question for us is will we rest our confidence in who Jesus is and what he has done? And those of us who have, will we cherish Jesus? Will we cherish this gospel? and earnestly strive to abide in him. What a wonderful time of year this is. A whole month where we get to anticipate God with us. Emmanuel, Jesus' coming. May it not just be one month a year, but the entire year, we constantly are dwelling on what God has done for us through Christ. So have you believed? Have you believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and found life in his name? Those who have? Will you proclaim this good news to others? Will you share with others as the disciples did? And those who have yet to do so, what are you waiting for? There's no one greater out there. Think of who Jesus is. There's nothing better, no one greater, no one who satisfies except for Jesus, who being the creator of this universe, humbled himself to come and be born. If that weren't enough, he lived He suffered and he died to be our purifying Savior. That that would be enough, but that's not all he did because he continues to provide for us graciously our physical and spiritual needs. There is no deity out there. There is no other God. There's only Jesus. May we trust him. May we cherish him. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is What a joy to speak of of you, Father. And Jesus, what a joy to speak of you. What you have done for us. How you have loved us. How you, being the God of all creation, the one who spoke mountains into existence and planets into existence, came down and was born as a human, as a little baby. But not rich and wealthy, but poor. It's too wonderful a thought for us to even make up or imagine. But God, that was your plan since before you created the world. Lord, you would come and be born and you would live a life of perfection, an example for us all, but then suffer and die on our behalf. But even now, sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. That's our Jesus. May we worship you in spirit and truth as you called the woman at the well to do. May we worship you, we pray, in your sin's name. Amen.